J. Aaron Simmons is a professor of philosophy at Furman University. He's the author of God and the Other, Ethics and Politics After the Theological Turn, 2011, New Phenomenology, A Philosophical Introduction with Bruce Benson in 2013, and has a philosophy contribution to the Rutledge Handbook of Pentecostal Theology, released in 2020. He's been the Philosophy of Religion section chair for the Southeast Region of the American Academy of Religion and is the outgoing president of the Soren Kierkegaard Society. He specializes in philosophy of religion, the political philosophy of Rorty, Kierkegaard, and Levinas, and French phenomenology. He joins us today to talk about growing up Pentecostal, the conservative turn in evangelicalism, and philosophies of presence and embodiment. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, it's oh, it's to, such a thrill. Great to Happy sit down to be with you. With you. So yeah. I actually was introduced to uh, you even the possibility of you doing this just through a really cool uh, set of kind of podcast episodes you had done with Trip just on his mm-hmm. homebrewed Christianity kind of. Um, you know, you guys had done a whole series on on walking with Kierkegaard, yeah. uh, Kierkegaard, Kierkegaard, which yeah. was really helpful to a lot of people. Um, and uh, so thank you for doing that. And that's, a, oh, that's a, an online resource. Did you, did you have some fun? It seemed like you guys had a lot of fun. It was a pleasure. Oh, my gosh. I mean, Trip Fuller, if, if your audience said no, I mean, this is a guy who uh, you could ha- hand him a spoon and an empty room and he's going to somehow make a game out of it. Like he, he makes everything fun, high energy, uh, and which is also cool because it allows me to sound like the serious one which almost never <laughs> in any interview is true. But whenever Tripp and I are bouncing ideas off each other, I end up sounding like the serious academic and he's the play one. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we had a ball. We had nearly 3000 people uh, in that online pop-up community uh, did six weeks on Kierkegaard and engaged his thought very heavily relative to, so what does it mean to live Christianly in the world today? Mm. Uh, how do we rethink, you know, debates that maybe Kierkegaard invites us into, whether or not we follow Kierkegaard in the answers to some of those debates, he, he raises them in the right ways. Um, thought a lot about, you know, his critique of Christian nationalism, mm. what that says to us now in a, a sort of post-Trump model of white evangelicalism, you know, how does Kierkegaard offer visions of what it looks like to think about justice and yet maybe push Kierkegaard a little bit on his, mm. I think, lackluster notions of community. Mm-hmm. So it was a, it was a ball. We had a great time. Um, and as a result of that little you know pop-up community, you know, I, I kind of hit the podcast circuit and did a lot of interviews on yeah. why Kierkegaard is relevant to the contemporary yeah. world and have heard just you know sustained good feedback about those ideas and what it was that Tripp and I were trying to launch and so it's led to a book I'm now writing um slower than I wish it were but a book uh, tentatively titled Camping with Kierkegaard mm-hmm. and the whole idea of it is how do we kind of you know not read Kierkegaard for the sake of being good Kierkegaardians but how do we try to live well as responsible adults in a world that is defined by misinformation, chaos, mm. uh, threats, neighbor hatred, mm-hmm. and animosity uh, in light of a kind of you know, model of individualistic capitalism? Mm. H- how is it that we're supposed to then like, be good humans to mm-hmm. each other? And I think Kierkegaard can maybe speak into that. Uh, but I also think going camping and trout fishing speaks to that yeah <laughs> so i'm trying yeah, to kind of bring those together yeah. and uh see what see what happens with it yeah yeah so so help us out a little bit you um you're an avid outdoors 
person. You are mm-hmm. uh, you're someone that loves biking, that has has an enthusiasm for nature that yes. I think is um, is not just tangible. I know pe- some people are like, oh well, he's he's an outdoor guy, and I'm an. I mean, d- just describe a little bit of that for us. You're in you're in South Carolina. You have you are mining the outdoors of South Carolina, trout fishing, <laughs> biking, hiking. Like, go through it, man. How, what excites you about yeah. that stuff? Before we dive into some philosophy stuff, oh, what man, what do you no, like this, about nature? And this is this is the fun stuff. So. I was born uh, in Cleveland, Tennessee, which is Southeast Tennessee, right kind of at the North Carolina, Georgia, Tennessee kind of you know border, but grew up in Florida. And so I grew up, you know, doing beach volleyball and, uh, you know, bass fishing, but it never quite felt right. Uh, the way I describe it is that Florida always feels squishy. <laughs> right. Like it doesn't feel solid. You yeah. Know? Uh, you know, like imagine how Nietzsche would be different if he had been in Florida rather mm-hmm. than the Alps. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure his philosophy would have been way less compelling. Mm-hmm. Now, I should <laughs> say, like, in due respect to my friend Aaron James and others who are beach people, man, they mine that space and do it really well. And it is baller when they talk about like finding the flow with the waves and, mm-hmm. you know, rethinking our economic lives and slowing down and adapting to what the you know beach offers. So that's awesome. And so people like my wife, she wants flip-flops and sand and thinks mountains are in the way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. So, so there's two different kind of views here, but I'm a mountain guy. And so after growing up in Florida, man, getting back to the mountains for me, it's, I don't know, it, it's solid. Um, every view is different. You know, when you're driving through Iowa, I'm, you know, it's just more corn and more corn, right? So it feels claustrophobic. <laughs> like I could drive nine yeah. hours and I'm still in corn, right? In the mountains, you know, every turn, every trail, every twist of the river, it's just always new and novel mm. and interesting. Mm no matter how many waterfalls I have hiked to, Mm -hmm. man, like I can't wait to see the next one. Right. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I do um, a lot of trout fishing. I actually took my job at Furman to do trout fishing in uh, Western North Carolina and got my PhD largely to, to go trout fishing because my dad's a professor and he trout fishes a lot. So I was like, man, that's a good job. I'll do that. (laughs) Right. I didn't understand tenure and books and promotion and stuff. So so I haven't fished as much as I wish I had, but um, then during COVID, I realized, wow, what, what would you do? And this is a good question for everybody. You know, what would you do if you had a year to two where you couldn't do the stuff that you normally feel like you ought to do, hmm. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Where it's, oh, well, I, I can't get to the office. I can't get to church. I can't get to, you know, whatever it is, mm-hmm. the community basketball game, whatever can't go watch March Madness with my friends at the, you know, wing shop. What would I do? And for me, it turns out the answer was everything that was COVID safe. I could Mm -hmm. be by myself in the mountains in my Tacoma lifted four by four with a bike rack on the back and a trout rod in the bed. Like, Mm -hmm. like, man, I can do all this. And so what happened was this real Oh man, like despite the trauma and indescribable horror of the pandemic, Mm -hmm. it was also this moment where like American capitalistic rat race just broke. Mm -hmm. And, 
you know, and I recognize my privilege in being able to say this, right? I wasn't an essential worker who was having mm-hmm. to deliver double shifts sure. to be able to provide. And thank God for those people or the rest of us couldn't have managed it. Mm-hmm. But man, I spent a lot of time in the woods and yeah. um, got into mountain biking, which is something I hadn't done when I was, you know, really since college and loved it. And so I'm now, you know, biking four or five days a week and, you know, any day I've got the full day, uh, I'm mm-hmm. heading to the mountains with a trout rod. Next week, my dad and I are uh, doing a guided trout uh, float trip together up Very in cool. uh, Northeast Tennessee. And yeah, it for me, I guess the the connection to theology or or religious existence. When when we um, think that what it means to be in relation to God is tantamount to being a member of a church. What can sometimes happen is the relationship to yourself and your relationship to your neighbors um, become mediated via the institution Mm -hmm. of the Mm -hmm. church, right? Mm -hmm. And I don't think that's the right way to understand it. I tend to think of the church as the community that is um, resulting from Mm -hmm mediating the relation to yourself and others via God Mm -hmm. and being in the mountains for me makes that connection to God and others actually much more profound, much Mm -hmm. more um, tangible. Mm -hmm. And it also reminds me in a kind of sublime way that like vulnerability is real. And of course we all know that in light of the pandemic Mm -hmm. and the Mm -hmm. the heroic people standing in Ukraine facing, you know, Mm -hmm. overwhelming odds, but man, you 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 slip off a rock in a whitewater mm-hmm. stream trying to fish one little hole and suddenly you're going under mm-hmm. like you're aware of <laughs> i need to get firm footing right yeah. i need to be real careful about where i'm at and why i'm mm-hmm. at and is this risk worth it mm-hmm. or you you're going down a mountain biking trail and you you hit a jump that's bigger than you mm-hmm. thought it was, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, figuring out, all right, how am I going to adjust my body in the air to mm-hmm. try to, you know, not run into a tree on the landing? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And there's something about that that then also makes you start thinking, you know, th- this is not just for me. It's not about just me getting mm-hmm. to the wood. It's also about I, I want whatever this experience mm-hmm. is. Mm-hmm for others to be what we're invested in making possible, Hmm. right? Mm -hmm. If it's the Mm -hmm. beach for somebody, if it's, you know, the small book group, if it's the craft Mm -hmm. beer, whatever the thing is, like, how is it we're invested in everybody finding those moments where they're able to say, yeah, this is good. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) And I don't know. You're a conservationist, good, man. man. You're starting to sound oh, like a yeah. Ducks Unlimited president or something. I, I, <laughs> I, I am I am definitely a fan of saying, yeah. uh, even though I'm a, a very hardcore progressive politically, I think we need to conserve what it looks like to say mm. use is not using up. Yeah. And narratives mm-hmm. of scarcity yep. um, tend to only benefit those who are profiting off of it. Mm-hmm. What if we started thinking of narratives of plenitude, right? Yeah. There, you know, I, there, Man, we better not get into fossil fuels yeah. or this will go three hours, bro. Oh, um, well, and I should make very clear prices climbing. That, that and, does yeah. not, uh, yeah, none of that opens onto health and wealth plenitude just for any uh, listener who might be confused. It's more yeah. about saying, Hey, right. I, my world is not made smaller because someone else's is made bigger. Mm-hmm. Wow. Right. 
That's Ben good. Folds has that great song. Uh, There's always someone cooler than you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> and he says, you know, uh, you, you don't have to, you know, make yourself big by making them small. And that's what, mm-hmm. when I'm in the mountains, man, like I always feel small, mm-hmm. you know, totally. and it allows me to be like, God, th- this mm-hmm. is cool. H- how is it that I can get out of the way of other people who mm-hmm. are trying to find, you know, their flourishing and their bliss? Yeah. So. You know, that's kind of a weird, but I mean, it's weird how many sermons go off on Old Testament figures and then actually do the actual opposite, right? Like they mm-hmm. make them big, then put us in their place. And now we're the rock star of the show. We're King David. Yeah. We're, and, and it's about <laughs> living Solomonic, like larger than life. We don't want to get into that either, but man, that's good. I, I, yeah, your concern for okay. the other, we'll get into that with your book a little bit, but um, yeah. that is refreshing. I think that's something that philosophers should be and, and need to be doing. Um, what, what else is there, right? Like we're, yeah. we're, we're here to create those sorts of environments for others. And if, and if others can flourish, uh, man, we've done something pretty important. And so, pretty cool. Um, and, and this is where, of course, it's been so uh, interesting to watch. I mean, again, there's, there's always, you know, it's like you always need, especially as an academic, to have a asterisk or a caveat or a footnote. Mm-hmm. Whenever you say something is really impressive, there's always the footnote saying, yeah, and it's, of course, still based on <laughs> narratives of privilege and exclusion. Right. All of that remains true. But man, it has been exciting to see, you know, during the pandemic, the Italians singing out of their windows mm-hmm. to each other and creating mm-hmm. community. Yes. And it's been so exciting to see in the midst of heartbreak of the Ukrainian mm-hmm. invasion, um, you know, like all of the countries around, mm-hmm. you know, saying, come in, mm-hmm. you know, this great Derridian, yes, yes, come. Right. Mm-hmm. And of course, again, they didn't say that as well when Syria needed it. Right. So so we can recognize right. there's still lots of problems. Yeah. yeah. But humans can find ways not to be defined by egoism and greed. They can also be defined by hospitality mm-hmm. and, you know, what I would describe as a logic of kenosis, mm-hmm. you know, saying, mm-hmm. look, it ain't about my place in the sun. Yeah. It's about recognizing the sun shines on a lot of places. And so mm-hmm. how do we get others out of yeah. the shade? Yeah. And yeah, that's good, man. Hey, there's some, there's some female theologians that are all over that topic. I mean, mm-hmm. I'll, I'll give a shout out to one. Christine Pohl Asbury has been writing on hospitality for what better part of four decades. Her stuff's yep. incredible. I mean, making room should be required reading in every 18 year olds. I mean, it's just amazing. Absolutely. It's like the Christian tradition started with hospitality. We got to get back to it. Um, I yeah. I'd also recommend uh, Wendy Farley has a book called gathering those who are driven away. And it's all about what would it look like if, yeah, the church was no longer defined by excluding, you know, Hmm. uh, the LGBTQ community or, Hmm. you know, whoever it is that's historically not been uh, invited. And what if we instead say, no, let's gather back the ones that we've pushed out. Wow. And uh, yeah, Wendy's Wendy's work is really, really, really impressive on that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's get into, we'll get into some fun topics. So just a, just some softballs here. Why should yeah. Christians get involved in philosophy just in general? Why should Christians be in the discipline? I, I, I would say um, because Christians are humans <laughs> most, most of the time. And uh, philosophy is at its most basic in attempt to put question marks where society hands us periods. And so if we're going to live reflectively, if we're going to live on purpose, um, we should love wisdom Mm -hmm. and realize that wisdom is not about having some truth that we hold, 
it's about being opened on to the idea that uh, truth is probably more than we know. Hmm. And this should humble us in the task of truth seeking. Hmm. So why should Christians do philosophy? Because they are humans and humans should love truth and wisdom and then have the humility to seek it because that's what then makes life, you know, more appropriately worth living. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, you're starting to sound like the wisdom tradition in the Old Testament, (laughs) which I think is actually addresses a lot of that in kind of pre-rational, you know, pre-enlightenment ways or whatever. That's right. Um, get, so give us a basic rundown. When most Christians think of philosophy, I think there's this tendency to go, oh, well, it, it's apologetics. Yeah. Those are not the same thing. Please, no. Just give us a quick definition that kind of just delineates where where the where the ground that those two kind of cover is. Yeah, no, it's a good question. Um, so philosophy you know, you can understand it in two ways. The way I, I understand it when I say, well, why should Christians care? I don't think that all Christians should be professional philosophers, right? Um, any, any more than I think, uh, you know, all Christians should be professional plumbers. Mm-hmm. I do think probably all Christians as people who live in houses should know how to, you know, tighten a sink faucet when it's leaking, <laughs> right? Yeah. And then call a professional if it turns out it's bigger than that or more mm-hmm. complicated than that. So philosophy understood as this Aristotelian, um, you know, wonder induced love of wisdom Mm -hmm. that I think all of us should be game for. And what that then means, maybe a couple of practical examples, then we'll look at the professional side. Practically, what this means is that we are appropriately suspicious Hmm. of um, narratives of truth that seem to be um, reinforcing the interests of the powerful. Hmm. Now, does that mean that we're doing complicated hermeneutics and digging? No, it just means we hmm. care about evidence mm-hmm. and, and we think arguments matter mm-hmm. <laughs> and we're committed to some kind of basic notion of public reason that, that hmm. you know, hey, if you're going to hold a view that implicates other people, you should have good reasons for this. And yeah. we should be able to talk about that. Mm-hmm. And criticism is not something that means I hate you, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Like, right. that's what I mean by we should all be philosophers in that sense. The best book I can recommend on that kind of view, and it's available to everybody, it's accessible. It's by two friends of mine, Scott Aiken and Rob Talese, wrote a book called Why We Argue and How We Should. Hmm. And the whole thing is about, hey, what you see on CNN or MSNBC or Fox News, that ain't argument, <laughs> right? right? That's theater. Yep. The world is not made better by that. Mm-hmm. The world is made better when people at dinner tables and bar stools and small groups and mm-hmm. walking on nature trails can think together about what makes life enjoyable. What should we care about? What should we value? Hmm. What are the kinds of policies in society that enable flourishing among people that we may even disagree with in other mm-hmm. ways? We should get good at that. So in that sense, philosophy in this, let's call it uh, everyday notion, it's not something technical that requires training in philosophy. It requires humility to recognize the set of things that you hold most true. It's cool if you throw some question marks next to those. Mm -hmm. Does Mm -hmm. it mean that now you're throwing out those commitments? It just means you're saying, but what if I'm wrong? Mm -hmm. What would change? Mm -hmm. Am I open to being wrong about this? And then maybe you come down and say, yeah, I I still think this is the right way. Cool. Right. But that's what opens up that hospitality in the context of engagement. Mm -hmm. But then there's another notion of philosophy. 
And that's what professionals do, right? That That's where we don't just take an intro to philosophy course in college mm-hmm. and then go become engineers or physicians or whatever. Mm-hmm. This is where we go get PhDs in philosophy. And I don't think that is for everybody, not because it's this elitist discourse only for the talented. Right. It's just because like, you know, it, it might be something that actually is less productive or mm-hmm. less conducive mm-hmm. to the social flourishing and human good that mm-hmm. the everyday philosophy actually facilitates. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I used to love poetry. I, mean, I still love poetry, but I used to love it mm-hmm. until I took a lot of advanced graduate courses on things like, yeah. you know, literary criticism. Mm-hmm. And it kind of wrecked my joy. Yeah. I couldn't read anymore without these layers. And, you know, and I was like, man, but I just want to read like Whitman say, you know, mm-hmm. oh, to sing of joys. Yeah. <laughs> right? yeah. And yeah, it was yeah. now, ah, but wait a minute. You know, his joys mm-hmm. were nested in the uh, Eurocentric mm-hmm. conception mm-hmm. of capitalistic <laughs> privilege. And, and, right. and I, I am sympathetic to all those critiques, but it mm-hmm. did kind of rob some of the, can't we just engage each other? Right. Yeah. So <clears throat> I think it's important. Iggy Pop says once, that anarchy and nihilism are probably best left to professionals. <laughs> I tend to think that's true when it comes to like complicated mm-hmm. jargon laden technical debates. Mm-hmm. That stuff's probably not good on Facebook. Mm-hmm. That's where you need pros who kind of are already abiding by a certain set of implicit right. rules for how we do and what we do. And so apologetics, the problem with apologetics is. There are also two versions. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there are popular apologetics, right, which ostensibly sounds like a good idea, right? Mm-hmm. Because that's just this public kind of intellectual. We're all doing philosophy and reflective right. and caring about arguments. And hey, aren't there some really good arguments for Christianity sure. or for biblical truth or whatever? So it sounds really smart and reasonable. The problem is. It's almost never deployed in ways that then are couched within the professional understanding of what it looks like to be really self-aware and humble about the deployment of arguments that now um, cultivate force. Mm -hmm. Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. So when you're in churches... And I grew up in these spaces where we would have, you know, like an apologetics weekend at church mm-hmm. or something, right? Or, you know, a six-week uh, se- session on Wednesday nights for apologetics. We'd, you know, yeah. read Strobel's Case for Christ or sure. uh, Josh McDowell's Evidence That Demands a Verdict mm-hmm. or whatever it is. And, you know, again, it's not that these are bad things. Those people can make their cases and show why they are committed in certain ways. And maybe that's helpful for people wrestling with stuff. Problem is... Um, it it was not deployed in those spaces as, Hey, Mm -hmm. here are some things we can wrestle with. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It was deployed as here's how you guard yourself against the attacks of the secular humanist pluralist world. Mm -hmm. And so when they hit you with evil, you go, boom, free will defense, baby. And you don't have to listen to them anymore (laughs) When, when they say, but, but what about all the right. people who have different religious commitments? You sure. go, boom, exclusivist truth. But you know, mm-hmm. And so it ends up actually being isolating, narrowing, and mm-hmm. self-protective. Mm-hmm. And I'm not accusing Josh McDowell of, right? I don't know him, but right. the way that it gets appropriated sure. and deployed, you know, the Francis Schaeffers, even sadly, some of C.S. Lewis, who I don't mm-hmm. think as a person was doing this, right. it gets taken up in white evangelical spaces. Right. 
as a way of actually not having to listen. Yeah. But then you got pro philosophers of religion. Mm-hmm. Now, I would not say they're doing apologetics in the sense of trying to contend mm-hmm. for the truth of Christ. What I would say is they're doing philosophy of religion and lots of them come down such that the better argument cuts in favor of theism than non-theism. Hmm. And so that then is a kind of apologia as Justin yeah. Martyr might talk about it, where what you're trying to do is get straight and clarify what you even hold to be true and why mm-hmm. it matters and differentiate it from alternatives. Mm-hmm. In that sense, I'm all in yeah. on yeah. a professional version of apologetics. Mm-hmm. But if the goal is to basically do the work of conversionistic evangelization right. via philosophy, right? Eh, I, yeah. I, I think then you're not doing philosophy. Yeah. You've already started at the end of things rather than continuing to sure. recognize philosophy is about living reflectively yeah. and being humble while we do it. Doesn't mean you don't stand someplace, right? You can't stand mm-hmm. on fences forever. Like, I am defend. I defended my work determinate Christian commitments as reasonable in a postmodern space. Sure, a lot of people think that I am, you know, narrow and self protective. Yeah, because, I'm like, nah. Sure. I'm just saying this is a reasonable place that yeah. someone could stand. Yeah, I'm not trying to convince right. people who read this, therefore Christ. Right, right. And I'm cool if we do those things in the context of the conversations on the nature trails with our friends. Yeah. Yeah. Right. This is what changed C.S. Lewis was Tolkien walking mm-hmm. and talking with him. Yes. And eventually he was compelled. Yeah. But again, that apologetics isn't this kind of aggressive, you know, mm-hmm. on the offense, taking back the world. It's almost like popular apologetics has become like the, mm-hmm. you know, uh, what Liberty debate team or something. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right? I, and, and I think actually it's not just dangerous. I think it is destructive to the life of invitation and humility mm-hmm. and yet confidence that real Christian existence invites of us. So yeah. I think it's usually when it's popularly done, it's usually bad philosophy mm-hmm. and dangerous politics hmm. and disastrous theology. So it's good. Not to hey, put too he, fine a point hey, on you it. You said right? it. His address is uh, one. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> I have written an essay called. Um, oh shoot! What the heck was it called? I forget now. It, but it, it basically is defending. Oh, it's called uh, apologetics after objectivity. Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm a fan of apologetics if we mean this Justin Martyr sense, right? In light of a postmodern hermeneutic mm-hmm. awareness, trying to invite neighbors to think better about stuff that really impacts the way we live together as social beings. Mm-hmm. Man, we should get good at that. That's good. I don't think the popular apologetics crowd is really being responsive to the kind of objections people like me would bring sure. because I'm not their audience. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. That's right. And yet yeah. as pros in philosophy, I am the audience and therefore we're not writing books that are actually designed for small group studies on Tuesday nights. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, yeah, you, you don't sure. want to read right. uh, Plantinga's modal ontological yeah. argument yeah, in yeah, the context yeah. of a church. It is. But a lot, somehow yeah. the popular apologist is citing Plantinga to right. defend their whatever. Correct. And you're like, yeah. 
yeah, know. yeah, but Planet is better That's, than yeah, that. Yeah, for sure, right? for sure. So anyway. Yeah, well, and so a couple just quick pitches. One, source text, right? Like going back to that original tech, go to see it, read C.L. Lewis, you know? Yeah. Like don't just read what somebody says about what he says and how he proves Christianity. Go read his books. They're amazing. I mean, he's got great arguments. He's not exactly mm -hmm. what some people think he is, right? Like he, he can mm -hmm. be kind of twisted and you're going, that's not really what he was saying. And, and I was so, invited yeah. to keynote... Um, or give one of the plenary sessions, I guess, at a C.S. Lewis conference a few years ago, <clears throat> but it wasn't academics. It was pastors and mm, missional mm -hmm. groups were coming together to kind of celebrate Lewis. <clears throat> and I got invited to speak and said, yeah, I'd be happy to. And they said, what do you want to speak on? And I said, I want to speak on Lewis's universalism. Yeah. Whoa, man. I got whoa. disinvited. Yeah, no doubt. They uninvited me. And yeah. I was like, oh, so you don't want to read Lewis. You want me to just right. deliver the evangelicalized Lewis hmm. who actually is not in the pages of his texts. Hmm. I'm not going to do that because I care about actually being a scholar. Mm -hmm. Now, there are scholars who hold those readings of Lewis and we debate each other in sure. professional ways. Sure. But when I'm talking to pastors. Yeah. I'm actually trying to say, hey, y'all, what, what if we recognize this other lens here? Then Lewis looks a lot more like Rob Bell and y'all are burning right. Bell's books. Yeah, <laughs> right? yeah, yeah. No, Maybe it, you should slow your roll. Yes. Yeah, I mean, C.S. Lewis is his own. That's its own topic. I mean, I think the other thing I want to mention is just while you were talking, I thought of the, the road to Emmaus story, which I think is actually mm -hmm. really important in philosophy. The way that people recognize Jesus post resurrection is actually they kind of just travel with him along a road. Yeah. And then, yeah, he reveals himself, but it, it is in that kind of encounter with the other that I think is, you know, it's, it's reflected in the Good Samaritan story. It's reflected right. all over the Old Testament. Uh, when we charitably encounter others in a very mm -hmm. um, theological way, in a respectful way, uh, and so this is kind of a Martin Buber pitch too, but when yeah. you encounter the other as the thou, you do encounter Christ. You do, yep. you are providing cups of cold water and you're putting right. clothes on him and feeding him. And, and those are important ways of, of wrestling with what God means in this, in this culture. And, but and that of course it, strikes um, at odds with the way that so much of um, broadly speaking, white conservative American evangelicalism has understood Christian identity as a combative, um, oppositional force, mm -hmm. which is anchored in an authoritative conception of God. And if anybody wants to see how this plays out, my buddy, John Sanders has a new book out called Embracing Prodigals. Uh, that is hands down, I think the most accessible, best account of why authoritative religion is Shoot, it, it's it's eradicating Christianity hmm. from evangelical churches hmm. and uh, it's distorting the gospel of Christ. And so uh, I'd recommend people take a look at that because what it what it looks like to be nurturant uh, relative to God, as opposed to authoritative relative to God, hmm. you know, suddenly you can see, oh, well, well, yeah, the wrongdoer is punished and the right people are empowered. And this is why you don't compromise and talk to people who are on the other side. And this is why it's all about obedience and loyalty. It's not about, hmm. you know, this sort of developmental relational engagement. Huh? Well, it's not surprising then that so many were willing to fall in line with Trump and 
to eviscerate their Christian commitments Hmm. because it turns out they weren't eviscerating them. They were just coherently living into what they thought Christianity was as developed in a 40, 50 year intentional history of white power structures being deployed as the core of what the word of God is. Hmm. So John kind of unpacks this and, and shows mm. this, and it's it's really surprising stuff. And I actually teach it in my secular philosophy religion classes mm. as a way of inviting my students from whatever background religiously mm. to understand the almost sociological dynamics that would give rise to these hermeneutic distinctions that they don't understand, but they live out. Yep. Right. Why is it that I hate those people so Mm -hmm. much? Mm -hmm. Ah, it's not that I hate Christianity. It's just, man, they understand themselves this way. And therefore Mm -hmm. I'm the enemy. I'm the problem. Right. Mm -hmm. So yeah. Embracing prodigals in stores now. Check it out, man. This is good. I'm like forcing you to be a theologian. We're going to get you a, (laughs) we're going to get you a title change. No, I mean, yeah. All that to say, Hey, sometimes sitting by the sea of Galilee with Jesus and just, Soaking it in could be the absolute best thing for all of us. It's not about the the church that came later and the power and the whatever. It's like, hey, sometimes you're just kind of that guy's, you know, you don't even understand it all. You're just kind of at, you're on that shore, just listening, trying to soak in some wisdom and and just figure out what what this life's about. And and, well, and as a Pentecostal, um, my pneumatology and my theology are still always going back to the criterion of Christology. Hmm. So if, if my notion of God doesn't look like Jesus, yep. something's wrong with it, yeah. <laughs> right? Because yeah, it's good. probably now just Greek metaphysics, mm-hmm. right? right? If my conception of relational spirited living doesn't look like Jesus, then it's probably just reinforcing my own conception of uh, entitled ease relative mm-hmm. to middle-class whiteness. And this is why I often say that uh, if you, if, if I were invited to give a sermon, which I do not do, um, <laughs> I, I would title it, you know, either God is trouble or God is nothing. Wow. So either God is troubling for our conceptions of God. Yes. Yep as reflective of our own social status or God is nothing but a reinforcer of that social identity. Mm -hmm. Right. And yeah, it, it, you know, Lewis has this great line somewhere where he says that he'd rather spend one day with a Greek peasant than to spend a year with all the Homer scholars in the world. (laughs) Right. Right. And I'm like, yeah, that's right. I'd rather spend 10 minutes walking with Jesus than spend, you know, two years at the evangelical seminaries. Right. And Mm -hmm. sadly, I think what that would maybe show me is that, you know, Jesus probably wouldn't feel very comfortable in the churches that are Mm -hmm. the most combatively defensive about protecting his name. Mm -hmm. And so I, I tend to be very non-confessional. I'm actually antagonistic to confessional philosophy. Mm -hmm. Because I think what it ends up doing is, again, starts where we should be ending. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, man, I'm a fan of personal philosophy, <laughs> which yeah. is saying we're all starting from somewhere. Yep. Unless we can like let those stories be part of why we're committed in certain ways and where our questions really lie and how it is that we're narrating certain periods in our lives. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think that what we're doing is genuine. It ends up being an academic exercise. Mm-hmm. And yeah, part of, you know, again, if you're going to go mountain biking and trout fishing and hiking and stuff like 
you ain't got time for academic exercises. You mm-hmm. you do academics yeah. so that it matters that we spend our finitude well. Yeah. Right. And what will you do with your finitude is a question that not enough of us ask each other because okay. we assume we already know you get yeah. a job, you get married and of course yeah. heterosexually, and then you're going to have usually two or three kids. And like, we, yeah. we know these things and then eventually you'll buy a boat <laughs> and, and then you'll retire. Right. And you're yeah. like, well, right. Maybe <laughs> that, yeah. that's an option. Mm-hmm. It, it's also an option to say, look, that's not how I have to define my life. And you know, the, the great communion discourses of Kierkegaard Ray reflects on the uh, invitation of Christ, you know, come all who are heavy burdened and I will give you rest. Mm-hmm. You think, man, do, do we think that the church right now is reinforcing a particular model of late market capitalism is giving rest to people? Hmm. not saying go make more money so you can prove that you're actually worth something in this world Hmm. instead of saying, you know, money isn't human dignity. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and if suddenly we now are not welcoming immigrants and we're not hospitable to the poor and we're not finding ways to rethink social structures so that healthcare is not something that you're having to choose to eat or get treatment. Yeah, no doubt. Like, you know, or, or global vaccine distribution. That's a Christian issue. Yeah. Because it's a human dignity issue. That's good. But yet when you say we, us, me, right. Well, that's about authoritative religion that says we're the ones who've done it right. We Christians. Yeah. They messed it up. Hey, this is my, you know, you're like, nope. Yeah. Nope. <laughs> yeah. So let, let's nope. talk, let's talk God in the other quick. So you write this book. It's been about a decade. Yeah. You, you write a book called God first single the, author. Yeah. God in the other. I mean, it, so I'll, let's just, you know, it's good. It's really good. I and I mean, that. it's got, it's not for everybody. It is not no, a it's not. popular it's, accessible it's book. I got to yeah. say. It's difficult to go through. I mean, and so, yeah. you know, the other thing is that it also probably led to that kind of phenomenology work, which, you know, in, in, in terms of you being able to break down a sort of new phenomenology, French, mm-hmm. you know, French philosophers basically um, come out and are able to wrestle with the things in post-modernity and come up with a sort of way forward. So that's kind of your yeah. second book. Talk yeah. about this first book a little bit. Um, you know, just one quick snippet here. It says, you know, you talk about Putnam and you're talking about the importance of trying to help other people as a requirement of ethical theorizing. And you're basically talking about the ways in which continental philosophy may kind of lead to a sort of systematization of ethics. But in some ways, you're kind of arguing the other way around. Like our commitment to other individuals, our commitment to each other as a global community should be kind of the first. And then we kind of go to make the world a better place. And yeah, maybe we come up with a system later, but we have a commitment to to look at each other as Imago Dei. Yeah, that's exactly right. My, my, here I'm following a, um, depending on how you want to read it, a French philosopher named Emmanuel Levinas, who is also notoriously difficult to read. Uh, I'm appropriating Soren Kierkegaard's uh, ideas here of, of what it means to engage in works of love. Um, and I'm also trying to think seriously about what it means to say, love God and love your neighbor. And that's the totality of like Christian life. Like how could we pull all that together somehow and yet pull it together in a way that doesn't require someone to be a Christian or identify as Christian to see this as who we are, as, as the beings that we are. Right. Mm. And so it's more a theory of uh, what I call, I'll say it technically and then make sense of it, uh, an ontology of constitutive responsibility. And all that means is who we are 
is defined as responsible before we are um, aware of ourselves as free. Hmm. So look, I, I'm, I'm a classical liberal. Like I would say, in fact, all conservatives and progressives both are sure. in various ways. Yep. Uh, I'm a fan of human freedom. I think the Ukrainians are fighting for this and it mm-hmm. is a moral fight that they are fighting. Hmm. No one uh, reasonably, in my opinion, could defend a less freedom as a model of human flourishing. Hmm. Mm-hmm. However, what we mean by freedom <laughs> mm-hmm. has gotten distorted uh, as I don't have to give a crap about who you are or what you do or how my living impacts you. Mm-hmm. And this is what we saw in the quote unquote debates. I would just say noise mm-hmm. of people arguing that their freedom was constricted by sure. wearing a mask. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, well, wow. Then you don't understand freedom as a concept mm-hmm. because they're understanding freedom as a possession that some people have mm-hmm. and other people, well, they just didn't work hard enough to get it. So sucks for them. And I'm saying, no, my deep abiding, like almost million conception of freedom, which is like sacrosanct and overrides mm-hmm. any quantitative way mm-hmm. of trying to debate human policy. Yeah, Freedom is anchored, I believe, following Levinas and Kierkegaard and others. It is anchored in a notion of I am responsible to Hmm. and for all the others. Hmm. Now, you can see why this is going to be um, an unproductive political party platform, (laughs) 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 right? Yeah. Because, wait a minute, if I'm responsible for all the others, uh, does that mean that then I'm just taxed at 100% and they get my house? I mean, you know, does that just Mm -hmm. mean now that, uh, citizens don't have any sort of special stat. Like you can see where this would mm-hmm. become super difficult in the space of policy. Mm-hmm. And all the thinkers who kind of hold these views say, yeah, it does. <laughs> mm-hmm. But but that messiness should not make us shy away from the commitment that our policy is the best we can do mm-hmm. to enact maximal freedom in light of abiding and unlimited responsibility. Mm-hmm. And, you know, think about what our conversations might look like, right? All right. If I um, am defending, say, (laughs) uh, universal masking and you're defending, no, masking is a choice. Mm -hmm. Well, we've got two different views on a policy question. Mm -hmm. The question for me and the important issue is not that we disagree about that. It's A, are we both responsible to our social others, to our neighbors? Hmm. Are we responsible by taking seriously publicly available evidence that we then can recognize across our policy differences? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. In other words, do we take science seriously? Right. Well, if it turns out that science is cutting very much in favor of mask reducing spread, that doesn't automatically mean that we are public mask mandate defenders. Sure. It might just mean that we're recognizing, hey, this is something science supports, but does it come at too high a cost? Sure. Yeah. Right. Relative to freedom and respect. Mm-hmm. You know, th- there were real mental health crises, uh, especially sure. in teenagers, right, as a result of isolation and social distancing. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's too high a cost. So it's it's problematic to think that the people who disagree with you on policy are automatically evil. Right. But we should also not only be committed to 
evidentiary standards that can be shared. We've also got to be committed to ideals toward which our policies are directed Mm -hmm. that are shared. Mm -hmm. In other words, hey, the reason that you might support not having a mask mandate is because you think that, in fact, it's less likely to cultivate a public awareness of shared responsibility because lots of people will feel like they're being forced to do something and it actually psychologically backfires. Hmm. So in the name of actually getting people to wear masks, your view might be, we've got to minimize the spread of this disease. And the best way to do that is not mandate this, but actually invite people to kind of live into and rise into their responsibility that is Hmm. chosen. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Somebody else might say, yeah, but people don't do it. (laughs) right? We're going to have to force them just like we do when it comes to vaccines for, uh, you know, measles, mumps and rubella. So notice, I'm just trying to show a debate that I think is unambiguously you mandate masks. (laughs) And yet- What this God and other idea is about is recognizing we can have these disagreements, but what we can't have is radical division on what even counts as evidence. We can't have radical opposition Mm. on what it is we're trying to do. The disagreement's got to be about, well, how is it that Bernie Sanders and David Brooks can disagree about the best way to achieve something like human flourishing in light of our abiding responsibility and maximized freedom. Hmm. And that's what that book's trying to do. But again, it does it by engaging in very technical debates about like Levinasian readings of Kierkegaardian faith. Uh, That's all good stuff to get into. And like I said, source text, man, like do the, do the reading. This is, this is good reading. So and I hope that's helpful though. Right. Because, Mm -hmm. you know, it it always disappoints uh, my conservative friends. That's a weird way to put it, but they did, they get disappointed when I point out to them, Hey, um, the obviousness that you think about yeah. that that's sure. the danger. And then my liberal hmm. friends get just as angry when I say the obviousness with which you hold the view. Yeah. That's the philosophical right. problem. Yes. I agree with my liberal friends when it comes to policy. I disagree about the obviousness of mm-hmm. those commitments, mm-hmm. which allows me to still talk to more conservative friends. Sure. And yet there are points where the conversations can't continue. Sure. Where I'm saying, hey, you know what, yeah. conservative friend, you've decided right. to not care about evidence anymore. You mm-hmm. are no longer responsive to reason giving. So therefore, there is no reason to continue engaging you as a reasonable member of society. Mm-hmm. But I've not excluded you. You've decided to mm-hmm. disengage from the context where taking each other seriously as members of society, you got you to be here and you're not here. Yeah. Well, so. no, I, I, I think that commitment to not necessarily just you know, you're not just launching grenades via in, in a trench to, to try and get your point across. And I think that that is one of the most, yeah, I mean, that's a philosophical compliment. I mean, we have to agree on terms. We have to decide what the values are. Um, there are arguments on both sides. Maybe they're not necessarily good or all, all the same weight or whatever, but I think that you're at least laying it out in a way that's helpful. Um, so yeah, God and the other, help us out with a little bit. So the term phenomenology mm-hmm. for the average person, my goodness, what in the world? Um, yeah. So yeah. I have a little bit of a heads up and then I was able to take some, um, some, some courses on Kant and, and then right. maybe some of the fallout from kind of his division of the nomenon and the phenomenon. Right, right. What, what is phenomenology? And what's the yeah. new phenomenology? What is that second book up to? Yeah. So uh, I just wrote a, a really cool paper, I think, with a, a friend of mine named Amber Bowen. 
And what we did was tried to introduce phenomenology to um, students of biblical studies. Hmm. And so it required us basically to say, all right, if you don't have a background in Heidegger and you've not done yeah. your Kant and Haeckel classes, and what is this thing? So what we argue there, and then also this is the backdrop conditions of the book, New Phenomenology. <clears throat> Phenomenology is an attempt to say, we are not uh, asking initially about what is the case, right? What, what is true about the world? What we're asking is how is whatever the case is, how is that experienced? Hmm. So we're not saying, is there a tree in the yard, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? We're asking, well, what does it mean to experience that there's a tree in the yard, whether or not there is, right? I could be high. I could be hallucinating. I could be dreaming. There's all kinds of things that might put mm -hmm. question marks about the veridical nature of what I think I'm experiencing, but the experience has its own quality. Yes. And we can see why this might be important because when we talk about experience, um, th the focus is it's still about the world. But it's the world in the only way that it is ever conveyed to us, namely as experience. Mm -hmm. So think about like, what if we in church asked ourselves the following questions? Instead of, am I preaching the gospel, right? Which is an important mm -hmm. question for a pastoral ministry team yeah. to ask. <laughs> but notice that's then nested in questions of hermeneutics about, well, mm -hmm. how do we understand what the gospel counts as? And well, in what interpretive tradition? And then, you know. Mm -hmm. But instead of asking, am I preaching the gospel? What they might ask is, what is likely to be the experience of what is preached today if, in fact, a, a transgender person walked in the back? What is likely to be the case for somebody who's non-white experiencing the content of what is being preached today? And when we start asking those questions, it allows us not just to be woke, right? It allows us to recognize there is no non-perspectival mm -hmm. embrace of reality. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't throw out objective truth. You know, all the fans right. of God is not dead movie series right. can still defend and chest thump about objective truth. What it says is, but objective truth is only ever something that I am affirming from a subjective location in a context and a community and a body. Hmm. So let's take bodies seriously. Hmm. Let's take contextual location seriously. So what it does, um, in my opinion, is phenomenology resituates our questions about not just what is true, but what is my experience of yeah. what I think is true. Mm -hmm. And then it opens us on to hermeneutics. Yep. And hermeneutics is just a fancy word for different ways of making sense of the world. Mm -hmm. So when we are phenomenologically aware, it doesn't make us subjectivists right. or you know, relativists in a bad sense, what it does is it makes us humble enough to say, wow, there are some experiences that might be shared across all human beings with the bodies that define humanity. Mm -hmm. For example, uh, another good book by my buddy, John Sanders called Theology in the Flesh. He'll talk about the idea of think about our metaphors we use for God. We, we need to, you know, see God face to face. Mm -hmm. That only makes sense because we're not jellyfish, 
<laughs> right? Like if we were, we wouldn't have faces. So the very idea of being face to face with God, the idea of saying, um, you know, we will meet meet uh, Jesus in the air during mm-hmm. rapture, you know, in this sort of dispensational right. tradition I come from. Well, notice that means good is up. And where is hell? It's below, right? So mm-hmm. now we have this narrative of height that is bodily interpreted mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. such that tall people are privileged in certain ways. And isn't that kind of how our world works, right? Taller equals better. Well, that's actually anchored in our theological language mm-hmm. about an embodied relation mm-hmm. to heaven and hell as spatial. So those things might be pan-human, but there's a lot of stuff that's not pan-human and is nested in our very individual sure. embodied the histories. Mm-hmm. This is like why a book like The Shack, right? Mm-hmm. Regardless of what somebody thinks of the theology, it's really cool because it embodies the three persons of the Trinity in ways that cause us to rethink mm-hmm. What if we've been traumatized or abused by our fathers, and yet we continue to have a white male pastor talk about God as father? That may not be as productively invitational, mm-hmm. but what if God's the big you know, African-American woman sitting on the porch rocking in a rocking chair, right? Despite the stereotype that's being deployed even sure. in that idea, sure. well, maybe that's now opening up and breaking down some of these experienced frames yeah. of how we then access our conceptions of the divine and others. So that's what Good. phenomenology, I think, opens onto. Now, as a professional, again, it, it becomes a very, very, very technical discourse about different ways of bracketing certain, mm-hmm. you know, theoretical assumptions and focusing on transcendental notions of consciousness and how we make mm-hmm. sense of imminent uh, streams of experiential lived reality. I think all of that stuff, again, is like that's best left to professionals. <laughs> yeah. But why should the pastors in the pulpit sure. care about phenomenology? Mm-hmm. Because it helps them say, but what if? I'm not a mother because I just lost my child. And yet I'm up here talking about mother's day. I bet that's experienced differently. Right. Hmm. And so it, it wrecks our assumptions about there's just an experience of the world. Right. And it allows us to appreciate the diversity of embodied access to the world.